0: Okay, remember the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which is December 1st, December 1st, write it on the top of your page, December 1st, is it already on there, December 1st, not meeting December 1st, and for those of you who are long-range planners, and I'm sure there are some of you, we will meet on the 8th, December 8th, that's Cantata. So if you sing in cantata, you have a pass. Uh, If you don't. (laughs) So we'll meet the 8th, we will meet the 15th, then we'll be off 22 and 29, and then we'll be back on the 5th, okay? Laurie probably got a lot of those at the top, but I'm not sure how far out she went. All right, let me pray for us. And we'll get started on 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Uh, Your word is truth and speaks truth to us tonight. Would you please give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Uh, we pray for it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. if you don't go to Christ Chapel regularly, or if you for some reason didn't go to church today, please pull the 11 o'clock DVD so you get the music and the message. Unbelievable. 11 a.m. service was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Second Samuel, still talking about the monarchy. Chapters 11 and 12, uh, very well known to you. Uh, so the way I'm going to treat these tonight is probably going to be a little different. Um, so let me give you sort of the, um, the preamble. Uh, we're going to be looking at David and Bathsheba. It's a story of amazing sin And Amazing Grace. It reminds and warns us of the blinding, ensnaring, and entangling deceitfulness of sin. And so we need to approach it appropriately. Um, As a reminder, we're looking at another believer's sins. Not self-righteously, not self-confidently, but with sober-mindedness. The Lord included this in here to remind us and to warn us. But if we approach this the wrong way, I mean, you've got to understand what we're looking at here. Imagine if this was your life or my life. Pick one. And that's in the Bible. And you know that there's people going over it (laughs) daily, weekly, monthly. So I want us to approach this tonight with a sober-mindedness. I like to have fun. This is not a fun lesson, and this is not a fun topic, and it would be, in my opinion, inappropriate to have fun with it. Uh, This is a real sober-minded lesson, and I I think I've made myself clear on that. If you get nothing else from tonight, please get this. You'll never come out of sin with what you go into sin to find. You'll never come out of sin with what you go into sin to find. I got that wonderful quote from Dr. Doug Cecil. Really, really a good quote and true to the scriptures. Uh, By way of intro, when you go to Jerusalem, when you go to Israel, you'll come uh, to see the Holy Land model, which is at the Israel Museum, and you'll see a 150th scale of Jerusalem. The... uh, Old city and, you know, the newer city, the New Testament city. So in the Old Testament, this is, it got a little bit bigger than this, kind of went up here, but this was the old city. It's just this big. You, you kind of think, man, this thing's probably as big as Fort Worth. Nope, really not. It's actually pretty small. There's going to be a temple mount, and then there's going to be um, some different big um. Governmental kinds of buildings. And so let me zoom up on two in particular. Um, Here's David's palace. And here are the barracks. You wonder how David could see. Well, not terribly tough, he's got next door neighbors. David would have been on the right-hand side. Uriah and Bathsheba would have lived on the left-hand side in the barracks. Uh, Some background. I told you this last week, but I think it bears repeating. In 2 Samuel 21, we're nearing the end of David's life. And so the author... Uh, kind of recounts some particularly um, decisive battles that David was in during his kingship. And the first one he goes through uh, in chapter 21, he says there was a famine during David's reign that lasted for three years, so David asked the Lord about it. We're not quite sure when this is, but it's likely after Saul and Jonathan are killed because at the end of this little section in 13, David obtained the bones of Saul and Jonathan as well as the bones of the men the Gibeonites had executed. And he's going to bury them in, the, uh, in Saul's tomb. So probably this happened right toward the end of when, when Saul died. Then the king ordered that they bury the bones in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father, at the town of Zelah in the land of Benjamin. After that, God ended the famine in the land. So probably that was uh, post-Saul and Jonathan's death. We're not giving, given any time markers in here, which is the reason for this circular thing. It says then in verse 15, once again, the Philistines were at war with Israel. And when David and his men were in the thick of battle, David became weak and exhausted. ishbi bin was a descendant of the giants. His bronze spearhead weighed more than seven pounds, and he was armed with a new sword. He had cornered David and was about to kill him. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue and killed the Philistine. Then David's been declared, you are not going out to battle with us again. Why risk snuffing out the light of Israel? I can't prove it, but I believe this is the event that leads us into 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David isn't going. Why isn't he going? because I think his life was put at risk in jeopardy probably the fall before. And so they said, you're not going with us. So at the time when kings go out to war, which is about March or April, David is not going because his life had been put at risk uh, the year before. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 11 First three verses. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, you may remember that Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, and Ahithophel is one of David's counselors. So not only is this Uriah's wife, but it's his counselor's granddaughter. Just keep keep all this in perspective, as well as next-door neighbor. David's idleness made him ripe for temptation. Sin follows a certain path that begins with temptation. David is where he shouldn't be. Where should he have been, even though his life was put at risk? He should have been out at war with his army. That's what a king did. But instead, David, you're right, I'm probably too important. I probably need to stay home. He's where he shouldn't be, At a time he shouldn't be there. This is what temptation does it hits us when we're where we shouldn't be. At times we shouldn't be there. David's idleness made him ripe for temptation, he was vulnerable. The warrior had laid down his armor. He might have been bored, but he was most definitely alone. Temptation is being birthed here. He's where he shouldn't be at a time he shouldn't be there. He may have been bored, but he is alone. Women, you know this probably about men. We're very visual creatures. Um, Men, women are more emotional kinds of creatures. You probably already know that. We're not given her side of the story. We're only given his. So, David, this, this unusually beautiful woman... These, this is a word that doesn't show up many times in the Old Testament. Vashti, when we get to um, um, Esther. Vashti is described in these same terms. I mean, this is a woman of extraordinary beauty. What does David do? He's walking around the roof. He's, it's March or April, so it's probably kind of nice outside. He's just gotten up from a little nap, happens to walk around. He doesn't have far to look. He's just looking from here to here. His temptation then leads to imagination. His imagination began to indulge in and ruminate on the sight in front of him. In spite of the facts that if he acts out his sin, he will betray Uriah, she is this mighty man's wife, and Ahithophel, his counselor's granddaughter. This also explains, you'll, I'll remind you when we get there, but later on when Absalom takes over, remember that? Guess who goes with Absalom? Ahithophel. I wonder why. In spite of the facts that if he acts out his sin, he will betray Uriah and Ahithophel. Now, I can't prove this, but when we get to Matthew, how is Bathsheba described? Do you recall in the genealogy? She's only listed as the wife of Uriah. I think that would suggest that Bathsheba has a level of complicity in this thing. Can't prove it? Doesn't say so? But it's there. But this story is about David. David's imagination starts going to seed in spite of the fact that if he acts out his sin, he will betray Uriah and Ahithophel. But he doesn't want to think about God right now. He just wants to be happy. Sin is not a very rational thing. Imagination then leads to surrendering himself to sin. Chapter 11, verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Um, Again, I can't. Can't prove it. I think Bathsheba has some complicity in this deal. Uh, She could have said no. Others would argue, well, you can't say no to the king. Well, you could have said no to the king. She didn't. Ask yourself the question she's married to Uriah. This is a time when kings go off to war. Where's Uriah? Off to war. You think she knows David hasn't gone? I think she knows. Is this the first time she's been up there doing this? Don't know. Don't know. doesn't matter. This is David's story. David has let temptation go to imagination. He's, even if he stopped to think about it for a second, he moves past it. And he surrenders himself to action from his imagination. He chooses to surrender his will to sin. He summons Bathsheba to the palace. He commits adultery with probably one of his good friends and most loyal soldier's wife. And then they go on about their business. Once sin gets moving, it becomes extremely difficult to stop. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Where does temptation come from? Our own desires. David desired her. He knew who she was whether she'd been up there one time or 100 times. David desired her. He imagined what it would be like to have her, and then he sent for her. He sleeps with her, and he sends her home. Problem. Second Samuel 11, 5 to 27. Later... When Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. (laughs) Then David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, Go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. (laughs) Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. Do you understand what he's got in his hand? Do you understand the man never opened it? Not even peeked. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king, but he might get angry and ask, why do the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech son of Gideon killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back into the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead she mourned for him when the period of mourning was over david sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives then she gave birth to a son but the lord was displeased with what david has done you understand david is a man who has everything and yet he doesn't have enough He's left now to cover his tracks. Bathsheba learns she's pregnant. David, now entangled in sin's web, schemes to keep his sin hidden. And when drink won't work, he orders the execution of a better man. He breaks the tenth commandment, don't covet. He breaks the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. He breaks the eighth and ninth commandment don't steal or bear false witness. And he breaks the sixth commandment don't murder. God is not blind to what David is doing. Temptation, imagination, surrender, covering. Finally, Revealing. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. David has persisted in hiding his sins for at least six months, maybe more. Charles Spurgeon My favorite preacher says, God will not let his children sin successfully. And so God exposes David's secret sins through Nathan's story. You are the man. Now that it's been revealed, all that's left is God's sentencing. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. God's sentence begins with the reasons, David's forgetfulness of God's goodness, and David despised God's word, maybe even put himself above the law. And then David knowingly declares his own punishment, because he said he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And God says, name that tomb. He said, David, a fourfold restitution will be required by you. He doesn't say it in here, but this is what happens as the story unfolds. The baby is going to die. Amnon is going to die by Absalom. Absalom is going to die by Joab. And Adonijah is going to die by Benaiah. The sword will never leave David's house. And yet, that's not the end of the story. There's God forgiving David. Uh, let's see, I missed eleven through twelve. Uh, This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you've shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. David confesses his sin and in fact writes Psalm 31 of 51 a little bit later. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason why the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you've stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon, or Jedidiah. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. David confesses his sin and God forgives him. That right there is stunning. This is a true act of grace because the person caught In adultery, and the person that he was um, guilty with were both supposed to die. God pardons them. So David confesses. God forgives him. But there are consequences that are irreversible. David is comforted, not resigned in the way the child dies. I take great comfort in that. God blesses them with another child, Jedidiah. God is keeping his promise, 2 Samuel 7, the covenant that he made with David. He's putting their past behind, and he's looking ahead. And immediately we're taken out of this scene, and you think, as you, hopefully, if you got a chance to read it, you went, what just happened here? Because we've just left this, my gosh, intimate look into David's life, and then, zing, beginning in verse 26. Meanwhile, Joab was fighting against Rabbah, the capital of Ammon, and he captured the royal fortifications. Joab sent messengers to tell David, I have fought against Rabbah and captured its water supply. Now bring the rest of the army and capture the city. Otherwise, I will capture it and get credit for the victory. So David gathered the rest of the army and went to Rabbah, and he fought against it and captured it. David removed the crown from the king's head, and it was placed on his own head. The crown was made of gold and set with gems, and it weighed 75 pounds. You know how much a cinder block weighs? You know those concrete cinder blocks? That's 40 pounds. Imagine two of those... (laughs) I'm surprised the next verse isn't, and then David's neck snapped. (laughs) Seventy-five pounds this thing weighed on his head. David took a vast amount of plunder from the city. He also made slaves of the people of Rabbah and forced them to labor with saws, iron picks, and iron axes, and to work in the brick kilns. That is how he dealt with the people of all the Ammonite towns. Then David and all the army returned to Jerusalem. What a strange ending to this story. Perhaps not. Because after God forgives, he restores. There's still kingdom work to be done. God is ready and willing to use David again, in spite of his sins, and gives him and the nation further victory. Over their enemies. You may need to just pause on this for a second. This is unbelievable. I don't want anyone to raise their hand, I don't want anyone to say anything out loud, but there are people certainly who have hurt you in the past. How do you feel about them today? Is this what you would do for them if they showed up in your life again? This is how God treats us. Who was David's sin against? First and foremost, Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned. That's not true. He did sin against Bathsheba and he did sin against Uriah and he did sin against Ahithophel. But this is the first one. I've sinned against you, God. God. And if I were God, remember, uh, I gave you everything and that wasn't enough. See you, buddy. You had your chance. You played your hand and you chose wrong. And now I am right and justified in putting you behind me and never dealing with you again. What does God do? David confesses, God forgives, and he says... There's still work to be done, David. Let's get back in the game. Here we go. This is unbelievable. (laughs) But this is how God has treated you and how he's treated me all the days of my life. When I sin, I know what I deserve. But he says... Bill, I know you're sorry. Let's go. I'm not holding it against you. In fact, I've separated it from you as far as the east is from the west. I've buried it in the sea and chosen not to remember it ever again. This is our God. And that's why he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Amazing, the standard of forgiveness God wants us to follow. He wants us to follow just what's been done toward us in Christ. The lesson tonight, you'll never come out of sin with what you go into sin to find. Got a few questions for you. Are you making yourself vulnerable? Are there are times and places when you're idle, vulnerable, alone, and without armor. I don't know your life. I don't know your habits. I don't know your rhythms. But I know people who are up too late, and for instance, on the internet by themselves, are right here. You're idle, you're vulnerable, you're alone, and you have no armor. And if you're on the internet that late at night, you're not just looking for email. You're looking for trouble, and you're just hoping it pops up some way, so that then you can say, "Oh, I really didn't go look for it. Boing! It just popped right there in front of me." Are you making yourself vulnerable? Are you putting yourself into relational contexts that you know you shouldn't be? The Spirit of God is like an alarm bell going off inside you when you get around that person. And you're ignoring it. Because you don't want to think about God right now, you just want to be happy. Are you making yourself vulnerable? Where might you be toying with sin? rather than remembering James 1, 14, and 15, that temptation springs from our own desires, our desires lead to sin, and sin leads to death. We always quote, the wages of sin is death in a salvation context, which is a true context and statement. But what is James telling us? Christian, guess what the wages of sin still are? Death and never anything else. The wages of sin have been and always will be death. Does that mean your physical death? I don't know. It did in certain New Testament contexts. But is it death to to you, to your sensitivity and relationship with the Lord? Yes. Yes. You, You can't mess with this stuff. And we all do it. We can't do this. We can't toy with sin. We have to remember how vulnerable we are to it, to its seductive nature. Let me, let me put it to you this way. Um, does Satan want God to be glorified? You should all answer no. No. <laughs> what happens when we go down the road of sin is god glorified in fact who's back there dancing a jig and laughing it's not god where might you be toying with sin rather than remembering james 1:14 through 15 Are you the man or the woman in need of confessing some sin or sinful pattern to God? Do you need to do that? If you've dealt with God regarding your sin, then he's ready and willing to use you again in spite of your sin. Are you ready? Or have you taken yourself out of the game? God has not taken you out of the game. Are you taking yourself out of the game? Because you can't forgive yourself. If God has forgiven you, then accept it and get back in the game. Guess what? He might have known this was going to happen. And so he gives us these horrible and wonderful pictures of how he deals with sinners in the Bible to show us who we are, and what we're likely to do, and who he is, and how he deals with sinful people who know better and who do it anyway. He says, Bill, the end of this story is how I think and feel toward those people. Oral Hershiser, many of you can remember Oral Hershiser back in the 80s, he was a pitcher, and he wrote a book called Men at Work. And as a pitcher, uh, he has a chapter called The Pitch, a whole chapter. <laughs> On the Now, I suppose if you really are into baseball, that's great to have a whole chapter on the pitch. I don't get it, but here's what I do get. So they're asking him about how he pitches to batters. Because, right, this is a game. What's the game? I try to pitch it in a way that you can't hit it or you hit it to one of my guys and we get you out. If you're the hitter, the game is, I'm going to hit whatever you throw me and I'm not going to strike out, and I'm not going to hit a 10 any of your guys, so that way we score, we get on base, or we score a run, right? It's just a game. Okay. So he's talking about different batters. He says, but what if personal experience or information from the advanced scout indicates that a particular batter is jumping on first pitches? There are two theories of pitching, Kersheiser says. One is that you try to convince the batter that a particular pitch is coming and you throw something different. Okay, so I'm expecting a fastball and you throw me a curveball. The other theory that you don't hear as much but that I use is that if the batter expects a particular pitch, you throw it. But you throw it in a place where he can't hit it. That is, know what a batter wants or expects and throw the ball almost there. Why? Because the batter will chase it every time. It's what he wants and it's what he's expecting. And if you're a good pitcher, you know when Bill comes up there what he wants on that first pitch And you're not trying to trick me. You're going to throw it. You're going to throw exactly what I'm expecting. But I'm going to throw it just a little too much inside. Or I'm going to throw it just a little too much outside. Or a little too high. Or a little too low. Because I know your tendencies. I know what you're looking for. I know what you expect. And you're going to go chase that thing. And I'm going to get you. That's what a pitcher in the major leagues does. Our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion or a slithering snake. Do you not think he knows what pitch you're looking for? But he's not going to throw it right to you. He's going to throw it just a little too much inside or a little too outside or a little too high or a little too low. Why? Because he knows you're going to chase it. That's our enemy. He's pitching to us. And he knows our tendencies. And he knows what we want. And he knows how to throw it so we just can't get it. But we'll chase it. Selah. If you've dealt with God regarding your sin, and he's ready and willing to use you again, in spite of your sin. Are you ready? For next time, read 2 Samuel 13 and 14. We'll continue. Uh, These are dark times in David's reign and rule. So read 2 Samuel 13 and 14 for next time. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. You are not afraid to confront us uh, with um, our tendencies, with our temptations, with our desires, to remind us how vulnerable we are. Uh, As the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Uh, Lord, uh, we are prone to wander. Thank you for your great mercy and grace, and I thank you so much for the end of this story where you forgive and you restore, and how it reminds me that I'm to treat others um, who've hurt me uh, as Christ has treated me. And I can't do that unless you transform me and empower me to do that. And so I pray that you'd continue to work inside of me um, toward those people. Uh, We love you. Thank you that uh, your spirit and your word are always here with us to guard us and to guide us. May we want to live for you and please you and obey your word more than we want to indulge our own temptations or desires or chasing after sin. Please don't allow us to be deceived. We love you and thank you and pray for these things, please. In Jesus' name, amen.